Well, we're almost at the end of the retreat. We have some closing sessions tomorrow, but uh, what I'm going to do this evening is try and pull some themes together from the week that we've been going through. And just like we started off, remember the first morning we started off on the retreat, I posed a question. I'm going to finish off on a question, which is uh, a question I want to examine with you, is do we have the courage to be? I'll say it again, do we have the courage to be? That means to, in a sense, step out from our closed prison houses, our cages, the constructions that we've created for ourselves over however many years we've lived. Do we have the courage to step out into the openness of being? What I was talking about at the end of the talk yesterday, to step out into that which isn't determined in the way that this closed, constricted prison house is. To make that movement into awareness, into, using a technical Buddhist term, wise attention, as opposed to unwise attention. You might be thinking to yourself, why is this even a question? Well, it's a question simply because in making this movement, we are, as the Buddha says, going against the tide, swimming upstream, against the main tide of whatever society is doing. And societies always seem to have been doing this because the Buddha was saying this two and a half thousand years ago, going in the opposite direction um, to what he is trying to put across, what he's trying to teach, what he's trying to get us to see. So that's the question, and I'll leave it to kind of percolate around whilst I'm trying to examine some of the elements of it. So, to make the movement into awareness, instead of the unawareness, the blindness, dwelling perhaps in the delusion and the ignorance that obviously is so palpably obvious at times and then not so obvious at other times, to take this movement into awareness, the awareness of the present moment. We were talking this afternoon, Jenny pointed out to you about all the little notes on the notice board about the lifts and that. There we were. Heidegger has a wonderful word, a little phrase for it. He says, we're always ahead of ourselves. We're being ahead of ourselves, not being. (laughs) So in other words, we're always thinking futurally, always making that step out into what is going to come. More often than not, it doesn't. It doesn't ever come. (laughs) Yet there we are, projected out into the future. There are some wonderful Zen stories, and I do recommend actually a little bit of levity sometimes. Um, And Zen stories are a wonderful way of introducing levity into the practice, because they actually tell us a little bit about, you know, um, the practice, obviously the teaching, but also introduce an element of humour into it to get us to see uh, what we're doing or what we're not doing. So I'm going to tell you a little Zen story. 
about this making this movement into... In fact, I'm going to tell you two Zen stories. Okay, two for the price of one. <laughs> I'll tell you two little Zen stories, both about making this movement into present awareness. One is a little story of a Zen monk who is walking by the cliffs. And he's walking along the cliff top, and suddenly part of the cliff crumbles away and he falls. But he gets his belt caught on a twig sticking out of the cliff. And he's swinging backwards and forwards on this twig at the bottom. And all the other monks rush up, peer over the top, and he goes, There's a wonderful flower down here! I think that's really what I call being with the moment. (laughs) Here's the other story. This is the story of a Zen master, a great Zen master who's dying. And all his disciples are gathered around him. And one of the chief disciples says to another one, and says, I think we should try and get our master something he really, really liked before he dies. And one of them says, well, I know something he really liked, which was this beautiful cake from this particular cake shop. And so the monk was duly dispatched off to get this particular cake from the cake shop and brings it back. And they give this piece of cake to the dying master, and the master eats a piece of cake, whispers something to all the disciples who are closely gathered round him, and hardly anybody can hear it apart from the closest one who's next to him, and promptly expires. And then the monks say to the chief disciple, who was the only one to really hear the last words, and he said, what was the great master's dispensation to us? What was his final teaching? Wonderful cake. (laughs) (laughs) Now, these are very good examples of showing you how to be in the moment, you know, whether in the, the dangerous situation or in you know, kind of even the death situation, of being fully present, and joking aside, are these beautiful illustrations of being fully present, which is what we're not. In being futural, in being strung out, actually not just only in between the future, but being strung out between a past and a future, then we're very rarely present to what is, to the disclosure of what is actually there in front of you, to the flower, to the tree, to the touch of the sun on your skin. We've had beautiful weather this week. The touch, the feel, the caress of the sun, the feeling of the wind, All of these can be disclosed to you. But are you present for them? Again, stepping outside of Buddhist thought, the novelist Virginia Woolf had a wonderful word for these things. She called them moments of being. And these moments weren't massive, ecstatic, metaphysical moments. They were little things like the things I've just mentioned. Um, One of the particular ones that she mentions is the touch of cold water on your skin on a hot day. When you're brought fully present 
into the moment. So how much are we present for this, and I used the term last night, this wondrous world that's around us, populated with wondrous beings. This wondrousness in Tibetan Buddhism is captured in the sense of the world, the universe, not just this world, but the universe being a bejeweled mandala, a great jeweled palace full of beauty and full of wondrousness. Yet, often our attitude to the world seems jaundiced. It seems very kind of, oh yeah, there it is. Yeah, there is another sunset. (laughs) Oh, there's a tree. (laughs) It's often, you know, kind of, the world is boringly obvious. Now, this is the opposite of that disclosiveness that I was talking about. And this becomes obviously extremely important in some of the elements that we're talking about, have been practicing this week. This kindness, compassion, this joyfulness, particularly this latter one, we've spent examining the joyfulness and the being of others in their good fortune and things like this. Yet, when we ourselves are literally full of ourselves, and this is what we are, we're saturated in ourselves, that narcissistic turned inwardness that we have, there is very little space for the other to be disclosed, to be there. When we're not this cleared space, when we're not simply being, how can we listen? How can we see, taste, touch, all the other things that I've mentioned? But particularly important, as I say, in the realm of interpersonal relations, the relations between beings, in allowing ourselves to be for that person at that moment. I'm sure we must have all had this experience. Please shout in the question and answers if you haven't, because I'd be very interested, which is almost trying to solve somebody's problems when they're telling them to you before they've even finished. Um, Already having the internal chatter going on, which is, as I say, trying to solve it as you go along and... There you go. <laughs> there's, there's it solved. Whilst that other person hasn't really a chance, had a chance to be disclosed. With the natural world, as I'm suggesting, to be there for the natural world. There's a wonderful saying by Fritz Perls, the Gestalt psychologist, um, which is, lose your mind and come to your senses. Yeah actually begin to not associate so much with that thinking process and taking ourselves so seriously. We take ourselves tremendously seriously. Whatever thought arises, it must be serious. (laughs) Um, This movement of movement towards the senses is to reveal what the senses disclose to us. 
This is not craving for sensual pleasure. This is just being the meaning of being an embodied sensory being. That is all. In early Buddhism, there is no kind of association with you just being consciousness and and awareness and all these sorts of things you get in much later Buddhist thought. In early Buddhism, it's very much we are embodied consciousness. We are its embodiment. And we often ignore the sense of that embodiment to our detriment, I think particularly in the West. There's a wonderful little, some of you might know, it's in James Joyce's Dubliners. Um, He talks about a man called Mr. Duffy who lives at some distance from his body. (laughs) And I think that's often a very common Western experience of somehow living at some distance from our body, probably not in the Totnes region, I might add. (laughs) This case seems to be quite different around this area. Um, but a lot of our experience isn't, isn't an embodied experience, isn't there. We, to use another thinker who also tries to put us back in terms of other experiences, the great mathematician and philosopher Pascal talks about the heart having reasons that reason knows nothing about. Yeah. To bring us back again into awareness and our recollection of being that occurs through our embodied sensory experience. So, the theme so far, really beginning to become fully present, to really be here, to really be for another. Now, this is absolutely essential with this major virtue, if you want to call it that, that we've spoken about and practice for a day yesterday, which is the development of karuna, of compassion. In some etymologies, the origin of this word is derived from a root which means to turn outwards. That's interesting, isn't it? If you think about it, you can't have compassion turn inwards. You can only have compassion, really, when you're focused outwards, when you're focused on the other. The other is the stimulus for compassion. Hence the reason why we started off yesterday examining, obviously, somebody who has mental or physical anguish in some form or another. To be responsive... And really what compassion is, the compassion that is advocated, lauded within Buddhist practice, is a total responsiveness to the other. Now, that's not going to happen if I cannot see the other because I'm so full of myself. When I'm turned inwards. The poet Rilke it's a wonderful phrase for it. It's in, for those who know his poetry, it's in the Eighth Duino Elegy. In that elegy, he particularly says about the peculiar nature of human beings, really right from very young. He says, all beings, all animals, are turned out looking into the open. It's only the human being, right from a very child, that's very peculiar, which is turned backwards looking into themselves. 
And very often, he goes on to say, do we look out into the open? Now, what this means, of course, in the more negative sense of what we're doing a lot of the time, is being turned inwards, being obsessed by our own thought processes and primarily by our own neurotic thought processes. This is the very definition, in a sense, of neurosis, being turned inwards, fixating, ruminating on all these thought processes, which all these thought processes which must be taken so seriously. It really is a total epitome of Descartes. I think I am. Rather than being, preceding, thinking. Descartes' biggest error was to try and establish us through our thinking processes. In thinking, I establish myself. Now you can see just how detrimental that can be when we are turned inwards in this process. So how do we step out again into that open? How do we make that movement? And do, coming back to the original question, do we have the courage to make that movement? And why I say do we have the courage? Because A, we have all of this societal stuff, all of the conditioning that comes from it, all of the conditioning of language and culture, everything that's replete and pushes us in a certain direction. So therefore it takes courage, bravery, to move out and move in an opposite direction to the way that culture, society, language often is pushing us. All of those conditioned processes are pushing us. To make that movement requires perhaps courage. Faint-heartedness will lead to, let's use a Christian term for a change, falling. (laughs) We keep falling back and back and are back into habit patterns. And I'm sure that's a common experience for most of us because we mostly start off with good intentions. You know, our day, perhaps you get up fresh in the morning, <laughs> get up fresh in the morning, and you start the day optimistically, and things are going to be different today. I'm going to be aware, I'm going to be mindful, <laughs> and I think I'll try and be a bit kinder. And what happens? Somewhere in the day, things start to slide (laughs) and we fall back into our habit patterns. Now, the reason that that's occurring is because the sheer familiarity of them. They are so familiar, the patterns that we have. And we all have individual ones. We all have our foibles, idiosyncrasies, and the the ways of dealing with life that we fall continuously back into, because they are the known. So it's about freedom from the known, making this movement towards that which is not known, that which cannot be determined, that which I've been suggesting, picking up on another theme, which has run really the whole way through, I particularly was stressing it last night and the night before, a radical contingency. Stepping out into the insecurity of the radical contingency, which is, there's only one thing you can be certain of. 
that everything is uncertain. There are no certainties. Theistic religion, let's just contrast this for a second. Theistic religion offers certainties. It offers a guarantor, ultimately. It offers a guarantor for your ethics and your ways of being in this world. And this is why Buddhism, to those within theistic religions, remains a bit of an enigma and sometimes an anathema. Because Buddhist practice has no guarantor. As a colleague of mine at Bristol once said, who strangely converted to Catholicism, (laughs) having been a Buddhist for many years, um, he said um, in a letter that he wrote to myself and a number of his colleagues that he found that Buddhism had no hope within it. Now, I think what we become fearful of is the contingency, is the change, is the fact there is no ultimate guarantor, there is no security, and there is nothing which is certain. As I say, the only certainty is uncertainty. Now, lest I'm depressing you, (laughs) I hope not, the other way of looking at this is that it's freeing, it's liberating. Rather than being fearful of it, necessarily dropping back into habit patterns, and we will, let's, let's not be idealistic about it, let's not set our goals at this moment too high, because every day, no matter if our motivation is good, we will still fall we will still fall into those patterns because they will dominate us. And let's just be realistic about that. It doesn't mean you cannot succeed. It just means that you have to have something, which I also mentioned this week, which is something that almost Eastern teachers take for granted um, and actually isn't present in the West to a great degree, which is patience. Patience in the Mahayana tradition is a perfection. The perfection of patience. The perfection of patience is the antidote to this restlessness and anger. So it's partly the antidote also to aversion, but certainly to anger. And this anger, of course, can be directed at ourselves. That we're not making progress fast enough. I've paid me money. (laughs) I expect results. (laughs) Now, I know it's a crude way of looking at it, but there is a tendency to this is to be impatient and to expect results immediately because I've put in hours on the cushion, so I need something. And this can lead to all kinds of delusory states and pushing and expectation and everything. Now, I'll tell you a little funny story about this. There's a monk I once knew who was in Switzerland. He was in Tibetan tradition. And he said that there was one night he was sitting meditating. This was outside of Zurich, up in the mountains. Um, He was sitting there meditating one evening, he said, and he suddenly experienced these wonderful, bright, flashing lights coming before his eyes. And he thought, 
any time now, the big one. <laughs> yeah. Light on the road to Damascus, nothing. Awakening, <laughs> this is what's going to happen. And he said, and the lights kept flashing, and the lights kept flashing, and the lights kept flashing. And he said, come on, come on, if it's going to come, it's really going to come, it's got to come soon. And in the end, he just gets bored with it, flashing lights and flashing lights and flashing lights. And then he goes <laughs> and opens his eye, and there's an electrical storm going on in the mountains. <laughs> just one of these silent electrical storms where there's only these flashes going on. I mean, again, the reason I'm giving this to you shows you what the mind will do, what it will grasp after in signs which really signify nothing at all. We're grasping after. So even the process of the path becomes something we grasp and cling to desperately itself. The Buddha makes it very clear that whatever we are doing in the path, and again, this is bringing wise attention to our practice, is a vehicle. That is what it is. It's to get us from A to B, from the unawakened state, from the sangsaric state, to hopefully the awakened state if we're diligent and keep practicing. Yeah. So it's not something to be clung to in itself. Many of you will know the parable of the raft. Uh, that the Buddha gives. You know, what happens to, if you like, the path, the Buddhist path, once you've become awakened? And the Buddha just says, do you continue to carry the raft on your back when you've crossed the river? So it's not an end in itself. It's only a means. Again, one, if you wanted to, could contrast that often with other, in scare quotes, religious traditions. And I'm trying to put forward to you, of course, that actually when we start to mix up religion in this, particularly in terms of early Buddhism, we somehow do it a disservice in the sense that it has family resemblances to things that go on sometimes in other traditions, but completely lacks most of the major elements that are found within other traditions. This terribly confused people, by the way, who first started to study Buddhism and Hinduism in the 19th century, the late 18th century, early 19th century. Because the first thing they marched into countries like Sri Lanka and said is, you know, okay, you're Buddhist, where's your book? And the Buddhists looked rather perplexed and said, which one? We've got thousands of them. (laughs) Or hundreds of them. Because there is no centrality of any book, even the Pali texts and those within the Tibetan canon or within the Chinese canon do not fulfil the role that something like the Bible or the Quran has or the Talmud in, in these theistic religious traditions. So it's quite unlike these traditions where the actual form itself is all important. So one of the things of becoming present is becoming present to what we're expecting out of the practice. What you, in a sense, are desiring from this practice. Often, when we identify too much, then we rigidify 
some teachers in other traditions will try to shake up that rigidification, this kind of tendency to fossilise things. The Zen tradition, which I've mentioned through some of these stories at the beginning, often will shake everything up every so often, really get people to, you know, in sense, some sense, experience the insecurity here. That's not your seat, go and sit over there. Yeah. There's no bed, roll it up. <laughs> Nowhere to escape to. Yeah. And this is all done to, again, bring back home to you the contingency of things. Don't expect things. When we expect, when we cling to expectation, there is actually, as I would refer to it, the death of what is. If my expectation is out there, again, futural, I miss seeing what is going on here. Because my attention is focused out there. So I miss entirely what is important, what is going on in this very moment. So I miss entirely what is probably the most important, what is going on now. We miss those moments of being which I spoke about. We miss the beauty. And this is something we tend to forget. We talk about the fear, the worry, the anxiety, but we miss the beauty of transiency. That sense might sound strange. Because something is transient, and again this is a thought which in a sense goes against the stream of mainline thinking, which usually says, well, the transient is that which is ephemeral, really is meaningless, and it's only that which doesn't change, which has real meaning. Well, why does that have to be the case? The beauty of transiency in Japanese aesthetics, the epitome, the highest form of aesthetic beauty in Japanese aesthetics, is cherry blossom. Because it's so transient. In Japan, I don't know if any of you know this, but in Japan, on the news reports, they will tell you where the best cherry blossom is. (laughs) On a day-to-day report. (laughs) So that you can go and see it. Um, When the fall comes in New England thousands upon thousands of Japanese will descend on New England to look at the changing leaves. Again, it's a very big cultural difference, but why is the cherry blossom meaningless, not beautiful? Because it's so transient. It isn't, is it? In fact, we appreciate its very beauty It's wondrousness, to use the word I was using last night, because it is transient. If cherry blossom was around all the time, ah, boring, cherry blossom again. (laughs) Again, I'm sending it up to make a point. That 
actually the impermanent, the transient, the evanescent is by its very nature meaningful and beautiful. Human life has its meaning in that we are finite beings, that we are beings towards death. If, like, and again, referring back to one of the earlier talks, if, like the Devas, we either lived in a tremendously long time and couldn't see the end of it, or we're immortal, I can't think of anything more worse than the idea of immortality. You know, fancy being you forever. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's a strange thought, isn't it? <laughs> but if there was such thing as these extremely long lives where you couldn't see the end of it or immortality, why would you do anything? Why would you choose to do this as opposed to that? I could always put off till tomorrow <laughs> what I could do today. You know, the, the endlessness of prevarication. Now, most of us, although we prevaricate in our lives, you know, have to end up making decisions, usually. And in a sense, that understanding, almost this implicit understanding that we do have to make decisions in our lives is an understanding, although it is very unformed for most of us, an understanding of our finitude. That we are beings towards death. That we're not going to be around forever. And these choices are in some senses the meanings of our life. I wouldn't say the meaning because that's a static concept. As often has been said, you know, the only meaning that your life gets is when somebody writes the obituary on you. That becomes the meaning of your life. Whereas while we're still alive, meaning is something which we are generating in all of the choices that we make in our day-to-day activities. So, stepping out into being, stepping out into the openness of being means stepping out into the presence and the presentness of the moment. Replete with all of its choices, all of its meanings, and the awareness to stay present here in this moment. Now, this is not to deny that sometimes we have to think futurally, and that sometimes we have to think about the past. But as with all things human, thinking about the future and thinking about the past so easily becomes yet another habit. So once you get into planning mode, you're always planning. You're always out there, ahead of yourself. Or perhaps, with a little bit too much psychoanalysis, you're always there in the past. (laughs) Always thinking about what went on in the past. Rather than being here in the present. I feel sometimes like going, anybody home? (laughs) Because very rarely are we fully, fully present in this moment. Now this moment is a moment of opportunity as well. It's a moment of opportunity to break the patterns. And we have it every moment. And every moment, and again this steps into the beauty and the wondrousness of transiency, this moment is unrepeatable. Do you ever think of that? 
This moment, this very moment that you're experiencing, which is gone, is unrepeatable. It will never come back. Yet, in this future stuff, what do we do? I know, I've done it in the past. I look forward to my holiday. <laughs> you know, oh, I wish this week would pass so I could get on and do what I really want to do. <laughs> now, I'm, again, sending it up slightly here to make a point, which is, isn't this rather silly? You know, it's what often in English we term wishing our lives away. You know, rather than being here in this moment, we're looking to something out there, some event, somewhere else. And actually, it's almost like deferring life. The French poet Rimbaud always talked about life being elsewhere. <laughs> you know? I mean, we know this phrase again in English, the grass is always greener somewhere else rather than where we are. So if anything I hope is getting across as a message towards the end of this retreat, is to become fully present, to really, really learn to be. Now, to learn to be means also, eventually, with all the falling, with all the problems of being compassion, being kind, being joyful. Yeah. as a way of seeing the world. And that doesn't mean trying to encompass the whole of the world with a kind of gooey expression. You know, it's not trying to encompass it in that way. It's every context you come into, can you be compassionate in it? Can you be kinder in that moment? And sometimes the compassion... For example, let's just take that as an example, is not always what we expect because compassion is also, can be action and quite dynamic action at that. I'll tell a little story again from my own past way back in the 70s when I first encountered Tibetan representations because Tibetans represent these forms of compassion and wisdom as well in, in kind of pictorial representations which are called deities, many of them. And I remember a monk taking me around one of the temples in Dharmasala, which is where the Dalai Lama lives. And I would go up to him. There's this nice, really soft, gentle-looking figure. And you, I think, I can't remember if there's any out here or not, but certainly some of those brass statues out there yeah, here, like um, Padmapani, who's kind of a representation of compassion that you'll see outside in the vestibule. Um, a gentle and soft. You know, very, actually quite sensuous some of them to look at, beautifully curved bodies, soft things on them. And I'd go up and go, what does that one represent? And you go, oh, that's compassion. Now, that one, what's that one? Oh, that's compassion. And there's all these soft, gentle representations. I came across this, at that time, I didn't know anything about it at all, this representation, which was of this figure, uh, which was basically just outlined in gold on black with kind of red flames coming out from behind it with a skull cup brimming with blood, which was overflowing, with a garland of severed heads, 
I think you might be getting the picture now. It was quite a frightening-looking figure. And I said to him, what's that one represent? And he goes, oh, that's compassion. (laughs) (laughs) Different energies of compassion, but the form they can take. Some compassion is very strong, and it's very dynamic. And it might be the compassion to help somebody to stop hurting themselves. The child that's about to put its hand in the fire, you might shout to stop them from doing it. And it's not done out of anger, it's done out of compassion. So it has a very different quality to the softness and gentleness that we more often or not associate with what compassion is. So again, don't have expectations about the manifestations that our compassion can take. Because it's not always soft and it's not always gentle. It can be quite dynamic. And insight and wisdom too has this. It's not all of one quality. So when we have an expectation, and this is the other theme really that I'm talking about, when we have and cling to an expectation about what something is, then we fail to see its other dimensions, its other manifestations in our life. In some of my teachers, I used to see these qualities greatly. Some would be nice and gentle and they would teach, talk to you and others would scowl at you <laughs> sometimes and really kind of wake you up. What on earth are you doing? I had one experience, I'll just mention this, because I had one experience with a very great teacher who died in the 80s. And again, he was um, a Tibetan teacher. But I'd made a list of questions I wanted to ask him. And I came in to see him, and I had this list of questions. And I went to ask him this question. And he proceeded to answer every question in exactly the order I'd put it down on the paper. And, but then, and this is the bit I really wanted to come to, he leaned across his table and said, why are you asking me those stupid questions? <laughs> I hadn't said a word. <laughs> you know, in this particular instance. Um, and so they can be quite wrathful to try and get you to see, you know, what are you asking? What on earth are you doing? Yeah. So don't always expect. In fact, drop expectation, if you can, in terms of your practice. Expectation, again, is about the future. And stepping into being, we're stepping into the being of this moment. To really being here and really being present. Now I'm going to finish this with a, with a little tiny poem, a little quote, which I think is rather beautiful. It's by Lipo. I don't know if any of you know, he's a Chinese poet. He says, The birds have vanished into the sky. Now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. I'll finish there. (laughs) Okay. Well, I don't know what questions people have or responses or comments or anything. Please feel free. We have a little time. I'll be kind tonight.
There will be some time. We won't have a tremendous amount of time. We've got a, we've got a session of about an hour and a half. Um, some of that will be to pull things together in a more practical way than, say, this evening. So both Jenny and I will say a few words about some of the practical dimensions. Uh, and then I hope to have a, a, a session where there will be a chance to ask some questions tomorrow as well. So if you haven't already got questions tonight and you want to go away and think and come back, anything to do with the week you can ask tomorrow. Volition, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, so everything in this moment has risen because of cause and tradition. Mm-hmm. But we can change that. Mm. That's the freedom. But what if, what if people don't realise they have that freedom? Mm. You know, some circumstances are so difficult that people don't know they have any choices. And, yeah. And, um, yeah, so... Yeah, it's very Well, I think that's right, isn't it? I mean, um, some forms of blindness, delusion, don't allow us to see that we have opportunities to change at all. And in a way, um, without sounding too fatalistic about it, that's why it's almost a self-fulfilling destiny. That people find themselves in patterns save abuse, for example, where they can't see any way out because they don't think they have any choices within it. Now, that's not to say they don't. It's just that they don't see those choices. They're not aware of them. What we can know, and this is where I really want to always bring it back home, is that if you are aware that you have choices, exercise them. And hopefully direct the volition towards that which is wholesome and skillful as opposed to falling into patterns which are often extremely unwholesome and unskillful. And I'm saying this about bringing it back home because actually in the end you can point out to somebody, for example, in that blindness, in that flailing around in thinking they have no choices, you can point out that they have choices, but they still have to exercise them. They still have to see them. But the only person we know that we can do, and I know it's almost a bit of a cliche, the only person we know that we can do something with is ourselves, by recognising our own opportunities and our own choices that we have. And this is very clear. I mean, I've often said this, and in fact there's probably recordings around of me having said it in this room before, but the Tibetans have a word which is often used to refer to the state, because they believe in literal rebirth, the state between birth, sorry, death and rebirth. And they call this term, and some of you will know it, it's called bardo. Bardo means intermediate state. And what's really being indicated by this intermediate state is there is always choice. In fact, it's a teaching about life as much as about death. That there is always choice... But unfortunately, uh, in this Bardo state, in this very kind of mythological, mythopoic thinking, so you have to kind of put yourself in this frame, it says in this Bardo state you're confronted by terrifying demons, soft, gentle figures, and an absolutely terrifyingly blinding white light here. 
So what do you do? It says, in the state that's going to find rebirth, not liberation, you choose the nice, soft, gentle figures. And it's like saying, wrong choice. (laughs) Because that's what's familiar. It represents the easy option here. Actually, what we should be going towards is the blinding, terrifying white light, which is frightening. (laughs) Now, as you can see, that's a form of mythopoeic thinking. But this being stuck in thinking, we are making choices. We're making choices constantly, actually. But the choice is just to keep returning to the same. That's all. So it's like sort of involuted, the actual process of making choices. So we keep returning, making the choice to return to the same, rather than that which is the opportunity. So what this means is that in each and every moment in this particular Tibetan way of putting things across, there is the opportunity for liberation if we make the right choice. Now, the kind of intermediate state here, or middle state, is actually represented by the wrathful figures in this because those are the difficult choices. They're not the liberating ones, but the ones that take you towards the blinding light. They represent the difficult So the moment we say to ourselves, well, I'm not going down the route I normally go down, but I'm going to try, for example, to be a little kinder. We're going a little bit more towards the difficult, that which is difficult in our lives to be. Now, it doesn't mean, and I really do mean this, it doesn't mean that you automatically have to have the feeling that goes with it. You can just start to steer your behavior in this direction. But what it does mean, as I'm trying to say quite forcibly, that every moment contains choice. Every moment contains opportunity. We can close down that opportunity by returning to the same, or we can open it up by going through this kind of middle state or towards the more, you know, the, the really difficult in each case. So that's a little bit, you know, kind of using that mythopoeic thinking about it. Don't become a turkey. <laughs> and then um, they, they get reborn as people, and mm. then it, it, so that the suffering goes on and on, mm. the repetition. Mm. And uh, like you say, it's quite sort of literal. Mm. That, you know, the same example of the fisherman, you know, yeah. So, but what I don't, I'm not quite clear on what the, the view, the sort of the insight meditation, Theravada view is, because you seem to be indicating it's not that literal. And also, it's not so all-inclusive. The Tibetans have a particular... And this is why it's always dangerous trying to say, well, all Buddhism says this, X, Y, Z. Because actually, it's down to different traditions. The early tradition, um, for example, says there isn't pan-karma. 
karma isn't involved in everything. Yeah. So, for example, stuff happens. <laughs> and that really is the literal, that's the view of early Buddhism. The Buddha does not say everything is karma at all. What he's saying is certain things are karma because they're attached to a consequence. Yeah. When there is an intention, there is a consequence. This is actually called karma with result, which is called vipaka in, actual, in, in Pali. So vipaka karma is the karma which is, if you like, continually fueling our process of becoming. And some of those consequences we will see um, happening quite quickly and others mature much later. It's like, again, I, I can't keep, help but keep coming back to these um, agricultural analogies that are often used in the early text because it shows you really what kind of society the Buddha came from because he's talking about fruiting. It's like you have a whole orchard full of different trees. They fruit at different times. Yeah, and so our karma fruits at different times. Um, this seems to be within, say, Theravada tradition, the idea, of course, again, literally, that some of this will fruit in further lifetimes. But it's not going to fruit for you <laughs> or me. It's going to fruit for whatever being comes later. Yeah, which... You know, actually, you could say, well, why bother? It doesn't really matter. It's not going to be me that suffers the consequences of this. So, so why bother? Um, so that leads me to thinking, and I really do say I'm out on a limb here with a lot of Buddhist teachers, in thinking that the Buddha doesn't intend literal rebirth at all. What he really is indicating as the consequences of your actions in this life which actually don't remain just in this life I'm in this world you're in this world and we act continuously thought, speech and deed yeah, we're acting continuously we're setting up patterns we're influencing people we're talking to people I'm talking to you you will talk to each other tomorrow and things like this I'm engaging in relations and it's like saying we can't do that without a making a mark which continues. Now, let's give a, a sad example. If I'm abusive to a child, that child might grow up and become an abusive adult themselves. So in a sense, I don't have to literally continue, but something of me carries over into life. Yeah. I'm in this world... And really, I leave a tremendous mark. <laughs> I was joking to somebody, you know, literally our rubbish goes on. <laughs> and you can say that literally or metaphorically. You know, all of our rubbish is going on. It will continue and it will continue to have effects in this life. Now for me, if that is, and I can't conclusively prove it, if that is really what the Buddha is saying, then really watch what you're doing really see and I think for me that's much more powerful than saying well it's going to be some other being that suffers in another lifetime I mean I can give a rationale to why I think that could work as well but for me the most powerful form of this teaching is much much more psychological be with what you're doing because it has consequences and so the ethical moral conscience will do and try to direct their actions to mostly good actions because they know it has consequences. And so really what we can see, the path of, the way I've interpreted in early Buddhism here, is this path of becoming totally ethical in this life. 
Really, that's what the Buddha represents. Total ethicality and the arahants in early Buddhism. Because they engage in actions, obviously they do, because they haven't popped off to Buddhist heaven. They're walking around in the world and doing things, but in a sense, there is no sticky, horrible residue which is going to go on from it. They haven't left any rubbish in the world. It's almost like walking through the world without making any footprints. But still engaging, still acting, and you know, really um, beginning to help beings in this world. Unlike the abusive, the violent, the selfish, all of these have horrid residues you know, that go on in some way or another. So it's quite a different view to the Tibetan kind of pan karmic view. That everything is karma. So that's kind of response. Do you you know any um, good books on dependent origination? Um, I tried to get one up six months or a year ago. It was out of print. Right. Which which one was the Paiutu one? Yeah, I think so. That's one I would recommend. The other one which you can if you approach the monastery is uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa's little book on dependent origination. He, it's a free publication that you can get from his monastery. Which one is that? Which one? It, it's, oh, can you remember the name of his monastery? What's one Yeah, what's one Yeah. Um, if in the library they have a copy of Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, which I think they do have, that will have the address of the monastery in the back of it, I know. Right. Well, that's quite a good one because, again, Buddha Dasa makes it very much about this life. Buddha Dasa, again, was a bit of a, you know, from a Theravadan point of view, slightly heretical. He said, you know, it was a teaching about this life, and that's the only way to interpret it. Mm. Yeah. But I don't know of any other major works. Those two I would recommend, Payuta and that one, uh, by Buddha Dasa. Are there any other questions? Or are you all just so tired? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, if there's nothing else, remember and bear in mind that I did say, of course, there will be a question and answer session tomorrow, so if anything arises for you, please feel free to ask tomorrow. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.